Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home Podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Hey, welcome back to Data Science at Home and Beyond. I'm Francesco, your host for the next 30 minutes. Feel free to join us on our Discord channel where you can get in touch with me and the amazing community of scientists and practitioners. You will find the links you need on the official website, datascienceathome.com. Today, as always, we are going to have a lot of fun with the topics you love the most. So put yourself at ease, grab your cup of coffee or tea, and expose your brain to the topic of the day. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the usual office of Amethyx Technologies based in Brussels City, Belgium. Today, I'm not alone. I am with uh, Ryan and Paul, uh, CEO and CTO from Zenlytic. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. Thanks, uh, thanks for having us on. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pleasure also because uh, I'm really eager to discuss with you some of the, you know, challenges that you are facing at Zenlytic, which is your company, uh, zenlytic.com, that's uh, Z-E-N-L-Y-T-I-C. But of course, uh, you will find the links in the show notes of this episode at the usual website, datascienceatom.com. Now, a very brief intro, and then I let you talk, guys, because this is your episode, not mine. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan, uh, well, you guys both graduated from Harvard, uh, but Ryan went into VC, then consulting at McKinsey Company, now uh, is building Zenlytic, while Paul, uh, also Harvard, data engineer, and then focused on building Zenlytic too. So, what happened in your lives? Did you guys plan for it? <laughs> um. You go first, Paul, if you like. I was gonna say I don't. I don't think you ever like fully planned for it. Like I had always wanted to start a company, but I think starting a company without a co-founder would be really, really hard. So one of the key things is finding someone who you know you can actually start a company with and you know work with for a really long period of time. So I think that's one thing where um, you know we both got we both got really lucky. And I mean, just the right person to start the company with. The, the way that I think about long-term planning uh, is a little bit like uh, my friends who are really, really good at chess. I'm not sure if either of you play. I'm, I'm terrible at chess, but I uh, I have a lot of respect for the game. And I remember like asking a friend, I was like, "How do you play that game? Like, you know, 16 moves in advance, and like, you know, like how do you keep that in your head?" And I I couldn't even fathom doing that. Uh, and I remember his response to me was like, "Well, you know, people think that it's about like tracking you know, really far ahead, but." That, that might have a small role in like the end game, but the vast majority of the time, it's really principles-based. And it's like it's not like planning each move intricately, but it's like understanding that you, know, you want to control the center four squares and like, uh, you, know, you count the pieces uh, and their values and things like that. So it's, it's, it's basically loosely based on rules that are going to kind of push you in the right direction without having you know, a really solid vision of where it's going to land. Uh, and that's, that's how I think about long-term planning for life as well. Uh, I would say that I, it's, I've been all over the place and done a lot of different things. Uh, and I couldn't have predicted the trajectory, you know, looking back, I, there's no way I could have actually figured out what would have brought me here, but I've had a few principles and like, you know, some of those principles have been like, first, I mean, I've always wanted to trend towards entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, I've always wanted, I've always tried to surround myself with really, you know, great, interesting, ambitious, hardworking people. Uh, that's what led me to go to Harvard, in fact, uh, with the hope of actually meeting a great co-founder and 
uh, I met one in Paul. So uh, yeah, long story short, it wasn't entirely, you know, deliberate, uh, but just a series of loose ideas that have sort of coalesced uh, into this really awesome journey we're taking today. That's great. I mean, thanks for sharing uh, a, 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 a very small piece of your life, of course, but probably one of the most relevant ones. Um, well, when it comes to data analytics and, uh, uh, well, actually today we are going to speak about self-serve business intelligence uh, as one of the uh, many things that one can do on zanalytic.com uh, with your platform. So uh, I don't want to spoil this, but I, I let you do that. What, what is Zanalytic exactly? So Zanalytic is a business intelligence tool that uses large language models to make data just radically accessible throughout the organization. So instead of having to email an analyst to get a, a report or a dashboard or, you know, just a data poll, you're able to just talk with Zoe, our AI chatbot, and um, have those answers come right back in seconds instead of days when someone's responding to a Jira ticket. And so I believe there is, I mean, now that uh, ChatGPT is out for a few months now, I mean, the, the big public is definitely familiar by now. Uh, about what chatbots are and also what they can do. Can I ask you, are you guys using ChatGPT or something like that? Yep. So under so under the hood, we use OpenAI. Um, we've experimented with all of the major the major like large language model providers and some of the open source tools. Um, so far, OpenAI is just the most the most performant of those. Um, our model also or like doesn't require us sending the company's data to OpenAI. So crucially, you know, we're not sharing any like really non-public information. All we're sharing is like metadata, like the names of metrics and things like that, never the actual like data. Right. So before we get to some of the technical detail that I believe the audience of this, uh, uh, the listeners of this podcast would definitely enjoy uh, knowing about, um, can you explain a bit more about how Zenlytics self-service platform empowers teams to access and utilize uh, business intelligence effectively? Because there are so many platforms out there. Uh, you guys are probably very familiar about your competitors. And sometimes for the end user, it's kind of, ah, yeah, another one. Uh, so what is Zenlytics exactly and why is it so different? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, it's, it's funny when you asked what is Zenlytic, uh, Paul responded, my, my first reaction was, uh, I think that Zenlytic is the world's first self-serve BI tool. Uh, and the, you know, it might be a bold claim, I guess, people might raise their eyebrows, but I, I think you know, the reason that I say that uh, is that uh, self-serve has been played around with, uh, you know, the semantics of it have been you know, held pretty sort of loose and people have moved the goalposts a lot. Uh, I think when people think about self-serve uh, BI as a result, they think about dashboards. Um, which are great. I mean, there's lots of lots of those other competitors are saying dashboards are dead and things like that. I don't think that's the case. Dashboards are very useful. Uh, so I think that's misconception of one number one is they're not dead, but they're also not complete. Uh, you know, the, the usual uh, work loop or the workflow for business intelligence uh, often starts with dashboards for an update. Then it gets down to the drilling, slicing, sort of getting more detail, uh, hopefully uncovering the truths and drivers, things like that. And uh, BI tools have to date, most of them have not been very successful with going beyond those dashboards. Uh, and that's kind of where we come in. Uh, we often get asked if Z you know, Zoe, our AI chatbot, is going to replace dashboards. And it's like, are you going to replace dashboards with that? And no, we're not. Uh, but the goal of Zoe was never to replace the dashboard. Uh, the goal of Zoe is to replace the chat with the data analyst that follows 
the, you know, from those follow-up questions on the dashboard. Uh, and that's the hardest part of being data-driven right now. Uh, the hardest part is actually, you know, the follow-ups, the quick data polls where you have to reach out to the data team and they say, oh, you know, like uh, I need this. And then uh, you wait in a giant queue and they come back anywhere from, you know, one to four days later. And then you need to have that, you know, weekly instead of monthly. And that's back to the bottom of the queue. And uh, it's, it's a very human in the loop, very sort of uh, work intensive process. Uh, that's just hard for both sides of that equation. So, you know, our goal is to offer a fully featured BI platform. And, uh, you know, we, we offer all the usual dashboards and we have a really great semantic layer driven uh, data exploration paradigm uh, for, you know, visual exploration. Uh, and we've added the missing piece of that now, which is that sort of AI uh, chatbot, which can sort of take the role of that data analyst and answer in, you know, a second instead of uh, several days. You know, I'm very glad that you mentioned the fact that dashboards are not dead, <laughs> not because I'm a, a very passionate person <laughs> about dashboards, but because indeed that's kind of the general opinion when uh, ChatGPT came out. Uh, you know, many people were saying back in the days, well, back in the days, just a couple of months ago, <laughs> these things go really fast, that it was killing Google. It would have killed the, the Google search engine, right? Uh, because people would have replaced Google completely with ChatGPT, which, of course, to me, it sounded a bit, you know, not the real story. I see an analogy here uh, when you say, no, we're not going to kill the dashboard. or We are not even trying <laughs> to kill the dashboard. We're just providing, you know, support to the user in that part of the workflow in which human beings are involved. Uh, so chatting, for example, with indeed the data scientist. Speaking with data scientists is not easy, though. No, no, it's not. And the, the the problem that we're really solving is not every single conversation with a data scientist. Um, there are certain things that you're going to need a human with, you know, deep technical knowledge, knowledge of the business to be able to, to get to. Um, tools tools like ours, no, no tool claiming to answer every single question you could possibly answer a data scientist is going to be able to fulfill that promise. Um, but the thing that we are doing is we're taking the really annoying, um, time-consuming, the sort of mind-numbing work off of both of those plates. And what that means is that, uh, you know, any given company will have tons of different metrics to find ways to talk about their business, ways to think about their business that are already defined. Those are already concepts that they deal with and that the data team, you know, defines and sets up. Um, and then you'll have end users who want different cuts of those, different slices of those. They want to know why they're going up and down. Those kind of questions. Those are all really rote questions that, yeah, you can have a human data scientist answer, but it's just kind of mind-numbing, you know, wheel and deal the same SQL queries over and over again with slight modifications. What Zoe enables is if you have those consistent definitions, the you don't have to have the human in the loop anymore. You can use those consistent business definitions that are customized to exactly how that business thinks about their data, thinks about their users or revenue, and serve those answers up to end users in seconds without them having to email an actual human. And that saves the data scientists for doing more sort of, you know, high level, like valuable work that they also enjoy. And it saves the end users from setting a, you know, week long queue. Paul and I talk about this a lot, actually, and, the, you know, the role of data teams. And we always say that there's kind of, there's three types of work that data teams tend to do. Uh, the first is actually building and setting up the tools, right? So setting up snowflakes, you know, writing transformation pipelines. Uh, the second is these sort of quick data polls. So helping people use the tools or, or taking their place for that basically. And, you know, providing, 
it's it's a it's a high volume but low difficulty job to provide uh, you know a lot of those data pulls, uh, and then the third is actually the more advanced you know statistical type work, and this includes things like you know designing and running uh, very high precision experiments or or just sort of deep data science type work, uh, uh, and I think that that you know those three roles are all very important. Uh, I think the third one will be the realm of humans for a long, long time to come. And I think it's a very important part of sort of the data team's job. Uh, our goal is to alleviate the workload of that second one, the quick data pulls, so that uh, they can spend more time building and deploying great tools and focusing on the really deep work that needs real human expertise. Very interesting. I mean, filling that gap between indeed um, data scientists and non-data scientists is uh, is is one of the biggest challenges that I've personally been involved in in, in my days. Um, so, of course, if there are tools that can, uh, let's say, reduce that gap, uh, especially in the communications, uh, you know, in the language, in the jargon that data scientists are used to and non-data scientists are typically speak, you know, what I call, quote unquote, the normal guys <laughs> or the normal people. Um, <laughs> so uh, we actually we have a toggle on our website. Uh, I'm not sure if, the website, if you click on the toggle and you can either change the copy on the website. One says I'm a data nerd. And the other one says I'm normal uh, verbatim. So we are we're fully bought into that idea. <laughs> yeah. Nerds think alike. <laughs> Indeed. Um, all right, guys, can you give me, uh, I, I, I'm curious now because I would like to know, for example, one specific example, of course, if you can uh, disclose, I'm not saying names, but definitely domain sectors of, uh, you know, an example of how Zenlytics analytics uh, capabilities have helped a company, you can pick one, uh, making data-driven decisions and improve their performance. Oh, yeah. So I think a good example is... Um... One of our companies that sells uh, feminine hygiene products, they, you know, they're a subscription business. And, you know, one of the biggest things subscription businesses have to worry about is churn. So they were able to come in, um, use analytic to analyze their data and figure out, you know, what was driving churn. What they figured out was that, you know, whenever they have these bundles, they're actually giving too much product to the end users. That's something that they just couldn't really know beforehand because they have so many people, they can't, you know, figure that out. Um, they were able to figure that out and, you know, make adjustments to bundle size, make adjustments to how they're, you know, the cadence at which they ship these. And they were able to, you know, reduce their churn rate by almost 15%. And, you know, for a subscription business, that's a really big deal. That's, you know, a lot of money and a lot of additional compounding that they can now get that they otherwise would have lost out on. And that's just a simple example. There's there's examples across industries. Yeah. The funny the funny thing about these frameworks, actually, uh, or about about these workflows, is there. You know, each one is unique, and there's always challenges uh, with any analytics projects. But you see a lot of common themes. One of the one of the biggest common themes is you know what, why, how. You know, like okay, what's going on? You know, why is that happening? What's driving it? And now, how can we change? Uh, you know, the situation in the way that we want it to. I think it's a great example of that, and we we try and. Uh, you, you know, as, as a base case, it's like, how do you get started? We always recommend, recommend people think in terms of, you know, what, then why, then how, uh, as a starting point for an analytics use case. But how do you ensure security and privacy of sensitive data? Because, okay, I understand that <clears throat> you're not sending data to OpenAI, of course. Uh, you're just sending, I believe, the um, the prompt or right, or whatever the end user is is typing. 
but in that information, there might be some um, sensitive data, sensitive information, probably not data, but some revelation. No? Can, can that happen? So if, if you're including stuff in your question that's sensitive, then, I mean, yeah, that's, that's going to get sent. Um, I would say seeing a lot of these questions, that doesn't, that doesn't usually happen in practice. Um, usually people are asking about things that are more conceptual and not really, you know, unique to their business. So for instance, you could have an e-commerce company asking about, hey, you know, which marketing channels are performing well this month? That answer might be sensitive, but that question isn't. Um, sure. So it's like sort of crucially how, how the system's actually working under the hood to get just a little bit more technical is that you ask that question, we basically take that question and then we add a lot of you know, context from your metric definitions. So the way our product works is that you've got um, a semantic layer where you've defined these metrics. Um, this ensures that there is consistency. The model is always using the correct definitions um, and consistently using the same definitions. We then pass kind of the names and descriptions of those to OpenAI and basically say, hey, based on what this person asked about, you know, which of these metrics should we include? Which of these filters should we add? You know, what, what basically should we be you know, asking? Um, OpenAI does a fantastic job of figuring out from a bunch of metric, you know, names, basically, and um, the sentence that the person asked, which one should I use? The then, you know, compilation of that into SQL is deterministic and happens um, in the semantic layer. And the running of that SQL statement, the visualizing of the results all happens in Zoomlytic and OpenAI is involved right. in that process. So there is indeed, OpenAI doesn't look at the data, the actual data, the, let's say the raw data or the whatever comes out of the, of the database, OpenAI has no access to that, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it would in case, for example, you wanted to, I'm just giving hints here. <laughs> Make a converse, you know, create, continue the conversation utilizing these results and let's say speaking these numbers in, in, a, in a human language. I don't know. So that's that's an option. We we have that as an option. Um, you can also turn that off. So it's like some companies are, you know, would prefer the ease of use and don't aren't worried about the, right. you know, sending sending data to OpenAI. So that's always an option. I see. I see. The, uh, the, the, big, the big difference there is actually uh, not exactly the follow-up questions because all those questions still don't really, you know, those are not sensitive themselves, uh, but actually in the level of fidelity that you give a, a language response at the end of the question. So uh, if, if we leave it to Zenlytic to visualize uh, and, you know, compute and, and, and you know, run the uh, query on the warehouse, that does not require any sort of uh, uh, data being sent to, uh, you know, outside to the LLM at all. Um, even if you have multiple questions in a, in a chain, for instance. Uh, but we have a feature that actually lets the agent explain what's going on, uh, uh, you know, in that data. And if you turn that on, then the snippets of data that is explaining will be sent back. Uh, but as Paul says, that's completely optional. Some people like it, some people don't. Right. Some people can, some people cannot. Indeed. <laughs> Also, yeah. Um, okay, that's good. I mean, there has been a, a relatively big discussion out there um, among the nerds, uh, best people in the world, by the way, <laughs> uh, about running your own LLM locally. Uh, so you know, there is uh, there are many ways now. There are even uh, several um, companies that are releasing commercially viable licenses, and so you can, uh, in fact. Um, 
replicate, if I can say that, uh, the functionality or mimic the functionality of OpenAI locally on your own machine or on your own cluster if you have one. And, uh, and so you would have absolutely zero dependence on OpenAI or any other external uh, supplier. Uh, how is that uh, conversation going internally? So something we're very interested in, um, we, and the, the other thing I'd say is we, we test out all these models. We test out the open source ones. We test out, you know, Anthropic, like Google, you know, like all the different, all those sort of major providers here. Um, I will say that right now, OpenAI has a, has a strong lead. And in terms of just general, like ability to comprehend, um, what the user is actually asking about and give, you know, important reasonable responses. They really are the, the best out there right now. I don't obviously know what the future is going to hold. Maybe, you know, open source models become much better and, and eventually surpass them. That would be, that would be great. It's really easy to keep, you know, all the data present. There's no real concerns about like, privacy or anything like that. If we're running everything on our own infrastructure. So that's very nice. Um, just sort of functionally for us, but yeah, not sure what the future is going to look like there. You are drowning in the ocean of different apps and services that are out there on the market. Literally so many of them could simply be replaced with the Nodes app that's pre-installed on your Mac for free. Yet your credit cards are sometimes charged for some services that you found good. But how do you know which ones are worth trying without draining your wallet on subscriptions that you forgot to cancel in the future? The answer is with SetApp. Setup is a platform that combines more than 230 powerful macOS and iOS apps and tools under one 999 subscription. Their selection of apps is mostly helpful for people who use their Macs as an actual working tool, covering complete use cases like coding, designing, project, and time management, and so on. Once you subscribe, you get full access to paid features of the apps, as well as to new apps that are constantly being added. So you always be sure you're not missing out on any cool apps and services that actually help you do your work more efficiently for just a fraction of the price. Setup powers you up. The, the LLMs are such an interesting space uh, because it's incredibly hard to measure their performance. Uh, right. And, you know, it's hard to measure comprehension in general. It's also they're improving so quickly. It's very much a moving target. And, you know, a year ago we were uh, we had these metrics for performance that have been thrown out. And now it's been replaced by how well does an LLM do on the MCAT or something? And, and who knows what the, the test suite's going to look like a year from now. So uh, but it's interesting tech because it's hard, hard to figure out if it's, you know, which is actually doing better than the other. Uh, the uh, one of the problems that sort of drives that is that people uh always fall on this trap every wave, which is they look at, you know, the capabilities of tech instead of looking at how they solve problems for the real world, right? Uh, and we always try to stay focused in that real world camp. Uh, and we're actually lucky that we have a very clear use case uh, that we've designed these for. And, uh, uh, you know, that's let, that's let us build some very sophisticated test suites specifically for uh, making Zenlytic work really, really well. And it gives us some good clarity into which LLMs are best suited for us. Interestingly, it's also probably varies per use case. Maybe one model is better at writing poetry and one better one's better at search-based functions. Uh, but after extensive testing, uh, uh, you know, so far we've landed on this sort of chain. Uh, we're going to keep testing and keep uh, watching things as they evolve, and we'll make sure that we always have the best-in-class models. But right now, uh, yeah, we're uh, 
we're believers in, in open AI at present, for sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, as you said, this uh, picture is, you know, can change anytime. Uh, in fact, uh, there are more and more, I don't know, there are more than 500 uh, <laughs> different downloads, uh, different uh, models out there. Uh, and the whole claim they are yeah. they are good, uh, you know. And as you said, uh, language is a is a weird uh, monster because uh, accuracy is not something that you can measure with a number or with a percentage. But also, it's there is also the perception because there is a lot of human factor uh, in the loop. So something that sounds credible to me or in one particular domain might sound complete nonsense in another one. So. Uh, you know that's yeah. uh, that's humans. As as you get closer to humans, you get problems. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, uh, and and it's also tough because as you as you said, the, you know things are changing fast, and it's it's amazing. I mean, we're talking week to week, uh, you know, developments that you have to stay. It's actually very difficult to stay on top of how fast the industry is moving. Uh, like you mentioned, I used to be a VC, and I've seen a few of these sort of major platform shifts uh, in my career, and I believe this is the next major platform shift. Uh, but the previous ones took years, years, right? So like you would, you'd release uh, the iPhone and then literally it was more than a year later after the release of the iPhone that the App Store was released. And, you know, it was several years after that before we started seeing really solid, widely adopted use cases like Uber from the mobile generation. And, uh, you know, going from years to weeks is something that I think people are actually kind of sleeping on right now. They don't appreciate uh, the pace of the change here. Uh, and it, amazingly doesn't really seem to be slowing down much. I mean, the innovation just keeps on steaming full ahead. So uh, it's it's a very exciting uh, platform and it's just a, a very exciting tech to be working with. Yeah. What type of business you think that can benefit the most out of this, uh, you know, mix and match of technologies? Um, type of businesses like... like Industries, sectors. Um, and then, of course, what type of users? Because I believe that a data scientist probably would not be that much excited to speak to himself or herself or or, or the guy or the girl next next uh, next desk. Uh, so maybe someone who wants to have, of course, probably, I don't know, a panoramic view or a 10,000 feet view of a, of a company, uh, I would say. But what type of businesses do you think uh, or sectors do you think would benefit the most? So I think us, like traditional BI are actually pretty horizontal, just naturally. It's kind of like, which which businesses benefit the most from data, generally speaking? Because I view LLMs mostly as an accelerant the, um, in the sense that you're able to do way more things way faster. So, you know, what an e-commerce company, for instance, is going to benefit from optimizing their ad spend. If they spend 10 million bucks a year and they get 5% more efficient, that you know, is a very meaningful impact um, uh, for their company. Uh, so it's like, you know, for each business, you've got to think about where did they apply data to generate value? It's like, if you're a subscription business, that's maybe reducing churn. Um, if you're a SaaS business, maybe that's also reducing churn. Maybe that's figuring out where there are choke points in your sales pipeline. Um, so from each business, it's going to vary de depending on like where the important points to apply data are. I think that LLMs, the thing that they really accelerate is getting data into the hands of the people who, who will be using it to make decisions, who will be using it to tactically run marketing campaigns, to adjust sales compensation, to you know, make these kind of important data-driven decisions. And the things that they, that they do is they allow data, correct data to get into the hands of that person 
way faster. So you get a faster feedback loop going as a company and can we make better, faster decisions as a result. Yeah. Your, your question makes me think about that old like Sherlock Holmes quote, uh, you know, data, data, data. I can't make bricks without clay. Uh, so like, I, I think that's, 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 that's true in a lot of cases, but also here. Uh, and I just think about like, uh, the, the real people who can benefit from this are the ones with, with the data, right? Unfortunately, that's, that's growing rapidly in the last few years with the advent of the modern data stack, uh, with the growth and popularity of the cloud data warehouses. I've seen, you know, stats floating around that I have absolutely no source for that, you know, they, you know, several years ago, there was 25% of the data was kept in the cloud and now we're rounding 75%. And, uh, you know, but we can, we can just see the widespread adoption of that and, uh, it's kind of interesting because this is a long arc uh, that, you know, people have been, you know, the reason that Excel has been the world's most popular piece of software for the last 25 years or whatever it is. Uh, uh, you know, people have always been using data, but we're seeing uh, that arc is, you know, finally settling on increased automation and, uh, you know, the ability to operate on that data at scale. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, why we're seeing this massive growth in adoption of warehouses such as Snowflake or BigQuery and, you know, this massive cloud data adoption. Uh, that's why we're seeing proliferation of tools, uh, you know, tools like DPT and uh, the whole modern data stack that uh, are used for actually ingesting and automating those pipelines. Uh, and I would say we're seeing those across industry, which is kind of interesting, right? So uh, five years ago, I would have said there were several industries that don't use data as much. Uh, and even when Paul and I were getting started uh, working together, you know, I would have said, for instance, uh, we worked with a lot of DTC brands, uh, but I would have said the fashion industry uh, sort of had less of an emphasis on data as an example, uh, you know, as a creative led industry instead of like a, a data led industry. So like they didn't actually pay that much attention to data. Uh, I feel like that is changing uh, and that has changed. And I feel like we're seeing companies of all shapes and sizes adopt these data warehouses now. Uh, you know, the bar is much, much lower. It's no longer a giant enterprise level thing. Uh, and it's also gone cross industry. So I feel like the proliferation has actually been, uh, I mean, great for everybody. Uh, and I think that we can, help a lot of those companies. Can you describe me a bit more the onboarding process? Uh, here is, you know, I'm curious to know, for example, how does it work if I uh, want to use Zenlytic a platform and I have my data sitting somewhere else? For example, I want, com I want to complicate things. <laughs> I have some of my data on my on-premise and some other data on the cloud. Uh, we don't mention brands, they are more or less the same. And then I want to, let's say, uh, put a nice dress around this data, this, this ugly data, and use a natural language to interact with them. What should I do? So I think the first question you've got to ask yourself is, do you want to join sources between your on-premise data and your cloud data? Well, yes, I would like to integrate somehow, find some semantic that is, let's say, common to to the data pools. Yep. So, so if you want to be able to join data that's like on-premise and data that's in the cloud, you're going to need like a database engine that's capable of doing that. Zenlytic is not a database engine. So you would have to look at like a Starburst or something like that to be able to unify those. If it's okay to keep those as separate sources where you're not joining data from on-premise into the cloud, then we can work with that just straight away. So basically the way that, that we work is we sit on top of, could be, an on-premise data warehouse could be a cloud data warehouse, um, basically a database that speaks SQL. And if that database speaks SQL, you then, as part of the onboarding process, you basically input your credentials, you see all the tables, you can click on tables and then start defining metrics. 
Uh, metrics is the language that business users speak. That's the language that Zoe, our chatbot, speaks. And you define, hey, you know, what does it mean to be an active user? For our, you know, SaaS app, maybe that's someone who logged in in the last 30 days and at least did XYZ action. Um, so however you want to define these metrics for your business, you then have the data team go through to define these metrics. And then those metrics are all just immediately available in Zoe. And anyone, the data team, the non-technical people, anyone can ask about those. So that process is basically set on top of data warehouse, any SQL flavor data warehouse, and define some metrics and then ask about them in Zoe. And the data owner uh, has full control over these queries that are launched, I believe, by Zenlytic, right? Like you, you don't install, you don't go in the Zenlytics offices with credentials and, and do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, so they, they have full control over how they define these metrics. So any, basically anything you can define in SQL, you can define in, uh, in Zenlytic. And that gives you a huge amount of control as the end you know, data person that no matter how complicated these things get, no matter how tricky, weird the definitions are, uh, if you can define them in SQL, you can define them in Zenlytic. And you're able to go in, have these really sophisticated definitions, and then have the LLM always surface those same definitions. Every time it talks about active users, it's going to be that same definition because it's just grabbing that thing that you defined, then compiling the SQL based on that. So you can be really confident that the stuff that it's showing to the end users is accurate. It's not just hallucinating some new way to talk about your active users. So, and that, that part's crucial. Like when we're talking to data teams, that's something that's an absolute non-negotiable. Absolutely. And uh, is there a way to change these metrics over time? Like maybe I want to add some more or I want to remove some that don't make sense anymore because my business has changed, you know, stuff like that. Absolutely. Yep. And all of, all of these metrics are governed in Git. So, you know, you're able to see branching, you're able to test out new things on different branches. You're able to, you know, define these new metrics, deprecate metrics, uh, change definitions, and then have, you know, basically a commit history and audit log of, okay, we changed the revenue definition on, you know, March 1st of this year for XYZ reason. This is the commit. This is how it changed. And, you know, you have this like log running of all the, you know, real major important changes to your data model. And that's crucial because these are important metrics. These are things that get reported to the board and you got to know why they change. They will change because they'll become out of date and incorrect in various ways. And that's okay. That's just how life goes. But as you update them and change them, you've got to know when you change them, why, what you fixed and have that knowledge that's not lost. There's, there's, there's an old uh, mental model for working with data that, you know, facts change quickly, dimensions change slower, uh, and tables change the slowest, right? Uh, and like, you know, structures, joins, things like that are generally fairly static. So uh, I think in that mental model, uh, you know, we would place metrics alongside dimensions with their rate of change, basically. So somewhere in the middle. And anticipate that accordingly, you know, you, you use your product uh, with, with that in mind. I think if people, you know, start assuming their metrics are never going to change, uh, that probably leads to some anti-patterns that would make it more difficult to understand uh, their data. So um, that's how we think about the world. Very interesting. Now I'm uh, I'm eager to try it out for uh, you know try to break it. I'm I'm a nerd myself and a hacker, so <laughs> I like to break things. Break in a good way, of course. Like you know, playing with languages and see how they react to some of the 
edge uh, edge corner or, or of of language. <laughs> um, yep, totally with you. I've been I've been breaking watches since I was about five. <laughs> Unfortunately, I usually fail to put them back together again. Uh, but uh, no, there's no, no better way to understand how something works than just kind of keep trying to break it until you can find you know find find the boundaries yeah. of them. And you know that's that's the way you understand things deeply. Breaking is good. Um, so, guys, I have uh, another question related to your company because it's it's truly interesting. Uh, how many people are involved with this? Because um, you know, with LLMs, uh, there is the misconception that we can get rid of humans. Um, yeah, so we are eleven people, uh, and I. Uh, so I think there's well, there's two separate thoughts there, which is why I pause. I mean, uh, I think it, I think we should spend more time talking about how. Uh, LLMs probably won't get rid of humans, but interestingly, you know, kind of paradoxically to that, I think that we're able to be as lean as an effective uh, team as we are, uh, because we, of course, adopt LLMs for uh, a lot of things we do internally at Analytic as well. Uh, and just like simple examples, like, you know, I think our engineering team can really sort of uh, punch above its weight class uh, in terms of productivity, uh, first, because they're awesome, but uh, secondly, because uh, we make heavy use of Copilot, uh, which has just been a valuable tool, right? And uh, so I, that takes us back to like, you know, are LLMs going to replace people? And I think that, I think the interesting thing is that there is, uh, uh, the, people are focusing on the wrong side of what LLMs can do better. So when people tend to focus on, you know, quality, for instance, uh, uh, and I think about, fo- think, think about focusing them on in terms of sort of time and automation and speed. Uh, and I don't know if you ever heard uh, Mark Andreessen speak about this. He, uh uh, you know, he just had a podcast on the A16Z podcast that talks about this. And he said, people are uh, asking if an AI, you know, is going to, can an AI make a better movie than Steven Spielberg or, you know, make a better violin concerto than Yo-Yo Ma or whatever. Uh, and uh, I, I agree with him that that's actually not the right question to ask. I think the right question to ask is what happens if you give Spielberg an AI? Uh, and, you know, what kind of movies could he make? And then imagine if the cost of building that AI uh, uh, building that movie went down from hundreds of millions to hundreds of thousands or whatever. Uh, and you can, you can build and iterate, uh, you know, orders of magnitude faster and orders of magnitude cheaper than before. Uh, you know, that human with the tool is really going to become the powerful, uh, the, the powerful, you know, opportunity of AI and LLMs and all this technology in general. And I'll go back to one other chess analogy as well. I love chess analogies, apparently, uh, which is like, you know, the, uh, up until very recently, like, so like, y- you know, for a long time, humans were the best chess players. Uh, and then uh, obviously, you know, Deep Blue, I think is probably the turning point. You know, we said, okay, computers are better than humans at chess. Uh, but then there, there was a long period of time, and I'm not sure if it's still true or not, but there was a very long period of time where the best chess player in the world was neither a human nor a computer, but both together, right? And they called them centaurs, uh, which is like centaur chess was a, a, an AI would make a, most of the moves and then a human would watch and override from time to time and say, no, we should do this instead. Uh, and that gave that sort of, you know, all the things that AIs were really good at and speed and automation and, you know, brute force and everything and all the things that humans are good at, you know, intuition and the sort of things that you can't quantify in a machine. Those two things together could beat any human chess player or any pure machine chess player. Uh, and the way that I think about these things is that uh, you know, the really amazing outputs we're going to get in the future are going to be a combination of a human using this really, really powerful tool. 
That's amazing. That's an amazing answer, uh, Ryan. Actually, you stole it from from my from me because I was about to ask this <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, no, usually at the end of each episode, I ask uh, some of you know the people in in the field who operate f- for as a as a living for a living. Uh, what do you guys think of AI and where you think the world is gonna uh, is gonna go in like five to ten years? And uh, usually I was used to 10 years. That was the, the previous question in the, at the beginning of this show. Uh, and then as we got into, you know, bigger and bigger findings and technologies, I, I made it shorter because, you know, in 10 years, people really don't know what to expect, but they don't know what to expect in like three, four years, looking at, you know, these trends and it's uh, this uh, impressive speed up in technology and findings. So my question to you is, where do you see the world in... Uh, five-year time and uh, I believe you don't but uh, I would like to know more about that do you think LLMs are going to kill us so I can I can take that first I will caveat it with uh, I think Ryan and I are both very optimistic about this technology uh, I know some people are not as so the thing I would say is that when we as humans create new really powerful tools we're generally always scared of them everything from the loom to cars to airplanes, like anything that actually moves the needle on human productivity, human efficiency, it's, it's scary because you don't immediately know what we're going to do with all of the drudgery. You know, imagine if accountants didn't have to spend hours and hours looking at PDFs and then making little tick marks into an Excel file to reference a number in that PDF. Like, what will we do with all of the, that time back? It's going to be good. It's going to be positive. Like that's not that's not the you know, meaning of human existence is tying PDF files to, to Excel workbooks. Um, this is just another tool that's going to accelerate human productivity, um, grow the economy, make things cheaper for more people. Um, it's just very exciting yeah, to me. Yeah, I, I think there's, uh, there's very few things that you can say with certainty in life, uh, right? Uh, I don't know if you know, the stock market's going to be up or down in six months or five years or whatever. Like, I, I don't know if uh, Google's going to have more employees or fewer employees than they do now. Like, I can't say those things uh, with any level of certainty. But one of the things that uh, I have certainty in is that the the abilities of technology monotonically improve, right? Technology only goes up. It's one of the few things that only goes up. So it's like, it's very predictable in that sense. So like, I mean, first and foremost, the way that I, my, my, my lens for the world is, uh, to accept that as a truth instead of trying to fight that. And, you, you, you know, I don't think uh, we've never ever in the history of like technology managed to put the genie back in the bottle. So I think, uh, and we've always just managed to embrace it and things have worked out really, really well. So like, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, first, first things first is like, it's, it's, it's going to happen. There's no sense fighting it. The, and there's like also like, all right, how do we embrace that? Uh, and yeah, the thing that also gives me, Tremendous confidence. Uh, and this is, I don't think it's necessarily a universal truth, but I think it's probably a universal truth uh, because it's always been true in the past empirically, uh, is that as technology has improved, uh, you know, we have, uh, it's it's actually st- it's taken over things that we've done, but we've found higher value uses for our time, right? So like, uh, you know, we were an agrarian society and then we invented uh, the tractor and all those people that were swinging plowshares didn't have to swing plowshares anymore. Uh, but it opened up all sorts of new opportunities for how we can, I mean, first we had people who were, uh, you know, building, maintaining tractors, which is like arguably a better job than swinging a plowshare, uh, as well as inventing new, better tractors. And, you know, that just keeps on pushing us forward. So 
I, I, I have tremendous confidence that that will be the case, you know, as it has been for the last 5,000 years of technology or whatever. Uh, and it's going to unlock new opportunities for us to build stuff, you know, faster and better without actually getting stuck in the, uh, it, it just takes off some of that, you know, hardest, most boring, most, uh, treasury, you know, the, 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 worst parts of, uh, making a difference or achieving anything or doing any job basically. Uh, so I'm very confident. I think it's going to be a valuable tool. Uh, I actually think, and I think the other thing, the other part of your question is that five-year time horizon, which I think is really interesting. Uh, because five years is is a pretty long time in in any sense of the word, uh, so a lot a lot can happen in five years. But in this in this case, uh, you know, five years uh, in AI years feels like a very long time away, and I think we can see a lot of really interesting advances happening over that time for time period. Uh, I think in that time period we start to see really really amazing, uh, you know, probably even superhuman levels of like comprehension and stuff like that. Uh, I think even the next year is difficult to predict, but I think one thing that we're, I think the, the predominant theme of what I would say the next year or so uh, is probably going to be uh, better uh, interaction and user experiences uh, wrapped around the technology that we already have. So, and I'll even I'll give you a quick example of that. Uh, my, my, uh, my wife uh, needed help building a presentation and she's like, oh, Ryan, I got to build this presentation. Uh, you know, it's about storytelling, uh, for, for businesses. And I thought, okay, that's cool. Uh, and I, I helped her build the first draft of the, the, the presentation in about 10 minutes using chat GPT, but I had to use a, a not well-known trick that you can actually get chat GPT to write VBA script, which you then paste into a PowerPoint and it'll actually build the slides for you instead of having to do that manually. Uh, it was very effective. Uh, uh, she gave. I, I even wrote the presentation for her in Japanese because she was giving this presentation in Japanese, and I can't read or write Japanese very well. So uh, I managed to do that in ten minutes. Uh, but it's only because I was able to know these sort of, you know, sort of. Uh, it's it's like expert knowledge of how to work around these loopholes or weaknesses in ChatGPT. And I think right now there is just thousands of opportunities on the ground to take this tech and put it in a way that anyone could do that. I'm like, why can't that just be a SaaS app where you put that in and generate automatically? So, you know. Uh, I think there's so many opportunities for that. And that alone, even if LLMs don't advance at all, that alone will generate tremendous amounts of value for an entire you know, wave of new technology businesses. Uh, and I think on top of that, LLMs are advancing in capabilities faster than ever. So long story short, I'm very optimistic. And I'm glad to hear that because uh, you're not alone in this thinking. <laughs> and uh, uh, this is just the beginning. Uh, I also have that feeling. And many of the listeners. I mean, also on this show, there there are, uh, you know, there are different people, of course, different opinions. Uh, but I can reassure you that uh, uh, the listeners of this podcast uh, have some kind of feet to the ground, so they have this grip on reality, and uh, they look at LLMs and the current technology as uh, just the beginning. In fact, as you said, uh, something that will uh, will stay probably with this episode. Uh, technology, it will always get better. I guess we are at the end of our uh, podcast today. And uh, uh, guys, I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experience and uh, the amazing things that you're building at Zenlytic. Thanks for having us on. Uh, great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks to Tom Francesco. Awesome to chat. 
You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.